Well, hello, and welcome to the Perspective Podcast, where we explore money through a spiritual lens. I'm Elle, a certified financial planner and a witchy old soul who just so happens to be going through a spiritual awakening myself. I launched this podcast to provide practical tips for stepping into your own wealth, purpose, and sovereignty as you navigate your own spiritual awakening. I lean on my own experiences in finance to look at money through the lens of energy, spirituality, science, and intuition. You'll gain financial knowledge to step into your soul's highest purpose and prosperity through a combination of episodes focused purely on financial terms, but also we'll explore a variety of spiritual topics as they relate to your money and wealth. If you're ready to step into ease and flow in your financial life and let that ripple across every single aspect of your life, stay tuned. Hi guys, Elle here coming back at you with another Finance 101 episode this week. We're shaking things up. I really wanted to share a little more about my story of how I got into the world of money and financial planning, and it does involve my childhood. And this episode feels really important because the power of end of life planning, legacy planning cannot be emphasized more. Um, I think we as a society and as a culture look at death and money as such taboo topics, right? Especially death. (laughs) Um, I happened to grow up in the funeral industry, which I don't know if I've shared on the podcast before. And I grew up with a dad who set up funerals and they also made the gravestones and the caskets for people who passed away in my hometown. So in my family, death was not taboo. And it wasn't weird to talk about because every single morning, my dad would grab the newspaper and he would read out loud the local obituaries, which sounds so weird, I know, but it was totally normal in our household (laughs) um, to be sitting at breakfast and be discussing all of the people that had died in town. I know this sounds so crazy, but it really was my childhood, my life. And I thought it was a normal thing (laughs) to read the newspaper every morning in that way. Um, But now I look back and I just, oh, it cracks me up. Anyway, um, death was not taboo in my family because it was my father's business. And it was his father's business before that. It was a family business. And I still have a a stake in the family business. Actually, it still exists today in my hometown. And as I got older, I started to see how people look at death, how it's this event that we don't talk about, and it's meant to be feared. And our society, for whatever reason, has decided that death is the end of everything and it's a scary, fearful, awful thing. And that wasn't really my experience growing up. And still to this day, even after having gone through a spiritual awakening and having experienced a lot of death in my life now, I can say at this age, um, I don't look at death like other people. I look at death as simply a transition to another realm and as a peaceful, beautiful event. And although it can bring a lot of grief and pain and sadness and suffering to those who have survived the passing of someone, as I've experienced my awakening, again, I feel so much more comfort in the idea of death 
than I ever have before because we all actually have the ability to even communicate with the other side, with our loved ones who've passed through mediumship. And if it's something you'd like to explore, maybe I'll bring a medium on and we can talk through that. But you are intuitive and you are able to communicate not only with your guides and your higher self, but with those who have passed on. And since I've been doing this work for almost a decade now, myself, I have been able to communicate through mediumship with loved ones who passed away. And I often do experience other spirits and other people who passed on in my meditations. Um, And it's not scary at all. It's really um, powerful and really beautiful way to connect. So with that said, death is a part of our life. The second we're born, we are counting down the days and minutes until our passing, really. And that doesn't have to be a morbid thing. It can be a beautiful thing because it reminds us of the impermanence of life. We don't know whether we have another hour or day or week or month or year or 20 years left in our lives. Some of us come into this realm to live a short life for a specific purpose, sometimes to teach others lessons. We come in to teach a specific lesson or to help someone in our soul group with one of their lessons. I believe my father passed early in order to bring healing to specific members of my family to give them different experiences. Obviously, I didn't see that when he passed, but I can look back and realize now why it had to happen that way. And I've communicated with him multiple times. I think our culture looks at death negatively because we fear the unknown, right? The unknown creates this massive void. We don't know what happens and we can't prove it. We can't prove what happens to us at death. And there's so many books and studies on the physical body and what happens at the moment of our death. But ultimately, as you ascend and you experience an awakening yourself, you become more peaceful around the idea of death. And you're not going to convince someone who lives in fear that death isn't scary. And you're not going to convince someone who's still caught up in the matrix that death is a beautiful event, a transition. It's not the end. And that's okay. We're not here to convince other people. We're here to have experiences for ourselves. So I encourage you to explore how you feel about death. Journal it. Ask yourself, am I afraid of death? Do I fear my own death? What do I fear most about someone close to me passing? Do you ever think about it? Because so many of us live in denial of what this life is all about. And part of this life is death. We live in denial that we'll lose our loved ones when the reality is that, yes, we will lose loved ones in this life. Reality is we will pass away ourselves. We will transition to other realms. That doesn't have to be a scary thing. You get to create that vision for yourself of what that looks like. But this episode today weaves in death and money. 
And I'm going to share my story of death and money with you because my father's passing was single-handedly the most powerful event of my life. It changed me in ways that I cannot even put into words, but it also gave me new life. But there are things that he put into place financially that saved our family. So let's get into it. So like I said, my dad was the partial owner of the family business. His dad before him created the family business. He struck out on his own. He was an entrepreneur and he started that business in the 1940s, the early 1940s. And they built a comfortable life for themselves. My dad chose to stay in the family business because he really couldn't figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And I, sadly, I don't think it was his passion, but my dad was the kind of guy who could find passion in almost anything. And so he really made the best of it. And I, I love that about him as he, he could get excited about anything and he was excited to go to work every day and excited to help people with this really difficult transition, with this difficult time in their lives. My dad was sitting down with people who had just lost children, who had just lost parents, who had just lost spouses within 24 hours of their passing. So you have to realize that this is not an easy job that my father had. You know, um, (laughs) it's, there's a special kind of person to be able to sit down with someone who's grieving in this way, who's in complete shock and have them make difficult decisions, expensive decisions for their loved ones. And through that process, he saw a lot of things that the living people had did wrong because he saw these people pass away unexpectedly and leave their families in such disarray because they didn't pre-plan. They didn't ever sit down and have a conversation about their potential death because death is taboo. So you have this grieving woman with her two children coming in who has no idea where her husband's will is, who has no idea how to even access her husband's bank accounts, who doesn't know his passwords. So you can see the importance of pre-planning before you pass away because it's a gift to your family. My father saw this happening over and over again. He would see families come in who, first of all, they're already grieving this terrible loss. That's hard enough. But throw on top of grieving this loss, this complete anxiety over everything going on, over having to pick out a casket and a headstone and plan a funeral and write an obituary within 48 hours of someone's passing, of having to figure out financially what your family can afford when it's in the thousands and thousands of dollars to bury someone and have a funeral. And then beyond that, after the person has passed away, There's all this legal stuff that has to happen that can drag on for months and even years. And if you haven't planned for that for your family, they're stuck with, frankly, what I call a shit sandwich. 
So I'm gifted in a way that my father experienced these, these things with families because he could see what he needed to do for his own family, for us. My father was a, not an unhealthy man. Um, my father had so much life in him. He was the younger brother of two brothers. And I'll never forget, I was in college and my dad and I had had a bit of a falling out when I turned 17. I just, I didn't like him anymore. I didn't want to be around him. And he was really hard on me for dating my now husband. And um, I just, I, I wasn't interested in being close to him anymore. Even though I was a daddy's girl growing up, we, we had a bit of a falling out. And so we weren't close. We weren't talking regularly at that point. But I was in college and we had gone to the wedding of my cousin in Alabama. And we all got home and I was about to leave to go back to Atlanta to school. And my mom and dad said, we need to sit down and have a family conversation. And I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that moment of us all huddled on the couch together because I knew if we were doing this, something bad was going on. And um, we all sat down and, and he told us, she told us that there was a routine scan for his reflux and there at, in the scan for the reflux, there was some kind of mass in his abdomen, the upper abdomen, kind of where his esophagus meets his stomach. And it was cancer. And not only was it cancer, it was stage four cancer. And so that was just like a shock. Like, no, no, our family, does, this doesn't happen to our family. This happens to other families. You know, we're in the business of this, but this doesn't happen to us. My dad was, um, uh, he was 54. 54 years old. And that really hits me hard now because that's not very old. <laughs> yeah, I just, I have such a distinct memory of that moment and thinking this, no, this doesn't happen to us. And if you've ever experienced an event like that, you probably have the same thought because no, not to us, but yes, indeed it did happen to us. And um, that was in February and they tried all kinds of treatment. They tried radiation. They tried chemo. His hair all fell out. He lost 40 pounds. And he was such an optimist. He would try experimental treatments. He was so still excited about life. He, he didn't lose hope. He was like, I'm going to beat this. And I'm going to try everything I can. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to do exactly what the doctors say. And things are going to be great. I'm going to be fine. I have so much life to live. And he would tell us about all the great things he wanted to do. And he had just started a new business venture. He was so entrepreneurial and so excited about life. And, um, you know, months of treatment went by. And they said, you know, we need to do surgery. We need to do surgery and kind of do exploratory surgery and see where the cancer spread because he's not able to digest food anymore. So we'll probably have to, you know, do a bag. He won't be able to eat. He'll still have to eat, but it's going to go out of a tube. And we said, okay, that's fine. You know, if that's a temporary thing and that's what has to happen and he can heal, then that's great. This is about four months in. And, um, he was still in great spirits. I, 
can't say that I quit school and came home. I didn't. I was home, but I was working over 40 hours a week. And I just had this idea that he was going to be fine. And I wasn't concerned. And I didn't spend a lot of time with him. I didn't. I was 19 and thought I knew everything. And I really didn't like my dad much at that point. And I thought for sure he was going to get better and he was going to beat this. If anybody could, he could with his optimistic outlook. And I continued to go to work and make great money and hang out with my friends in the summer and, you know, hang out with them from time to time on the weekends and have dinners. And and then they did the surgery. And after the surgery, which lasted a lot longer than we expected, they came out and they said, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. His entire body, his intestines, his entire insides are riddled with cancer. And there, we can't remove all of that. <laughs> That's why he can't eat. That's why he has this obstruction. And the cancer is traveling up his esophagus into his throat. And they said, all we can do is palliative care. And I just remember sitting there like, what? I can just picture my teenage attitude. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is my dad. He's fine. <laughs> And then they brought hospice in. And that's when I realized things were bad. And um, my sister was only 14, about to be 15. And they kind of had hidden the severity of it for as long as they could from her as well. She was away on a vacation with friends and family. And they decided just to wait a little while to let her come home to tell her just trying to give us this normal semblance of life. Like everything's fine. When in reality, my dad was dying and, um, he was put into hospice very, very quickly. And then he passed. So it was five months, six months max. Yeah from the time he was diagnosed till his death. And I remember very little of my life the year after he passed away, very little. But I know, I remember it being a really, really dark time. We didn't process it, we were in shock. But I look back now and I'm so grateful for everything he did to plan for his death, even before he ever got sick. And that's why I wanted to talk to you guys today. Because what you can do while you're living right now to take care of your family, if you were to pass away, is the most impactful action you can take. <laughs> but it's also action that we don't want to take. So many people I know, I think more than 50% of Americans right now do not have an end of life plan, do not even have a will, don't have anything and haven't talked to their families about it. Even fewer, maybe 30% of the population has talked to their family about what needs to happen when they die and what kind of planning they've done. And that needs to change because this is so powerful. My dad had gone to a prominent financial planner in our hometown, one of the best financial planners when he was young. 
when he was 25. Yeah, right when, before even, before I was born. And he knew he was going to have children and he wanted to have life insurance to take care of my mom and our family if anything had ever happened to him. And he got the cheapest insurance you can imagine, term life insurance, 30-year policy. He got up two policies for the family, knowing that he was going to have kids. He did some planning with the financial planner and they talked about a will and he put together a will and they even set up um, a couple of trusts. They set up trusts to hold land for the family business so that if he ever passed, the rent from that land would still go to his heirs. Now, all of this he did when he was in his late 20s. He wasn't sick. He was healthy as a horse, but he knew he wanted to take care of his family. Fast forward to his end of life. And I remember having a conversation with him right before he passed and him saying, now you make sure your mom goes to this financial planner and works with him and gets to know him and develops a relationship with him because he's going to be the one helping her call the shots and she's going to get all this life insurance money when I pass. And that, that money has to last for, for our family because he was the breadwinner. He was mostly the breadwinner. And I just remember saying, okay, dad, whatever you want, dad, and thanking him for doing that planning work. And then he passed. And you know what? My family didn't have to worry about all the legal stuff. We didn't have to worry too much about all the crazy cancer medical bills that were coming in because, man, we're talking about hundreds of medical bills after his passing that came in. My mom had support. She had had a few meetings with his financial planner. She knew him. Actually, it was a female. And that made all the difference for our family because we were able to just focus on the grieving process and moving on with our lives. And that was hard enough. I can't imagine having to go through probate, having to figure out this complex maze of paperwork alone after someone passes away. My dad had the foresight to share all of his passwords and all of his websites and where all the money was. But every day people pass away prematurely and they don't have that stuff in place. And I know you think it's not going to be you because we never think it's going to be us, ever. But the reality is that we don't know how long we have. The greatest gift we can give our family is to do some of this planning now. My dad had a million dollar life insurance policy, term life, 30 years. It was a pretty straightforward process for my mom to get that settled. And when I was out of college years later, I thought about that a lot. I thought about the power that those simple decisions had on my family. 
and the impact that that financial planner had on my family. Just a few meetings, getting to know each other, developing a relationship, and then kind of seeing each other once a year. And when I was considering a change in career from personal trainer, that kept coming up in my mind because I thought, I want to do this for people. I want to help people with this because there's so few women doing this. And this is powerful work. And so fast forward now, and I've been in this industry for a decade. And it never ceases to amaze me how powerful end-of-life legacy planning can be for your family. You know, forget investment planning. This stuff matters even more to me personally and to your family because death is hard. It's such a hard thing to go through. And I've been through it myself. I know because I lost my dad at 19 and that spiraled me into some depression and disordered eating and somewhat of a crisis for about a year of my life. But then I lost my family dog who was like my child, Toby, a golden retriever of 15 years. And then I lost my dad's mom. I lost my grandmother. Boom, boom, boom. All in succession. I've experienced death and I know grief. And I can tell you that what you do now for your family, getting your affairs in order now, will make such a difference for them in the future. And I could spend the next hour telling you horror stories from people who've walked in my door who didn't do end-of-life planning. Y'all, families broken up because the money didn't get distributed the way they wanted it to. Siblings who were seemingly friends and close become strangers over the death of a loved one. All over what? Money? Money and death? Mm. So taboo, right? Well, you guys know now that I have no qualms about talking about either one. And if there's anything you do in the next month for your family, let it be to do some of this planning. So now that I've shared my story, I'm going to spend probably the next 20 to 30 minutes giving you tips and ideas on how you can go about creating a legacy plan for your family on a shoestring budget or on a budget that's a little bit more robust. So grab a cup of tea and let's get into legacy planning today. So I'm going to use the term legacy plan and estate plan interchangeably here. So if you hear me say estate plan or legacy plan, they're the same. What I want you to know today is that whether you realize it or not, you already have an estate plan in place. Even if you've done no planning, what does that mean? If you're an American citizen, the U.S. government has an estate plan set up for you, and it's called probate, probate court. And what happens is when you pass away, all of your assets become frozen. And 
in order for those assets to be distributed, they have to go through a court system. And the court will appoint an executor, someone to manage your estate. If you have no will, this still is going to happen, okay? It doesn't matter what you've done. This is kind of what happens by default if you pass away. This is your estate plan, and it's not a great plan. So I want to share a little more about what happens when you pass away and then what you can do to change that and make it better for your family. So you have an estate plan. It's kind of set up by the government. They say, okay, we're going to probate your assets. They're going to go through court. And what's going to happen is this executor is going to get approved and this person is going to have to file letters of testamentary for your estate and they're going to have to distribute your estate and we're going to try to figure out who your closest heirs are, who your family members are, and we're going to give them an opportunity to contest and then your assets may be distributed based on how the court decides. It's a very long drawn out process. The court also would have to decide who gets your children. Really? I don't think you want the court deciding who gets your children either, right? So let's suffice it to say that you want to do some pre-planning to keep this from happening. What can you do? Really simple things that you can do right now that are impactful. So if you're on a shoestring budget, you want to go and create a will. You can create a will online. It varies by state, depending on whether you're a common law state or not, or community property state. But each state kind of governs the type of will that you need to have. And so if you go to a website called trustandwill.com and you put in the state you live in, you can customize a really, really simple bare bones will for about $100. Now, this is only going to cover the basics, but if you're on a shoestring budget and you own anything at all, you have money in the bank, you have retirement accounts, you have whatever, you know, you own a home, you own some cars, you have some pets, you have a kid, you want to do this. Set up a will, go to trust and will, pick your state. And that's just going to kind of cover the basics. You're probably going to need a lot more than that down the road, but this is just a good first step. Just, okay, peace of mind. Like I have this. When you go on that website, it's also going to allow you to set up guardianship for your children. So if you were to pass away, God forbid, in an accident with your husband or your spouse or your partner, who would get your children? This is going to set up guardianship. So you want to set up a will for yourself, but also your partner, um, not just you, if, if you are in a partnership of any kind. So you set up two. Um, one for each of you, and you both, you know, list the same guardianship. And then also the cool part about this website is that you can kind of list out where all your assets are and just give a general idea and list of where everything is. And also talk through things like pets. Who would get your pets if you passed away? Who would get your car? Who would get all of these things? So I like it. It's simple. It's kind of rudimentary, but it kind of gets the job done just for now. Um, what's going to happen is you're going to have to choose an executor for your will. That is the person who is going to decide how your assets will be distributed based on what's written in the will. They're going to make the decisions and pull the levers. So this is work for them. If you passed away unexpectedly, this person is going to get handed this will and have to handle all of this and go to the court and do this and do that. Make sure everything is distributed according to you. 
they're bound by law to follow your request and do what you said. So this is a lot of work for whoever becomes an executor. And this is something to consider in your end of life planning. You don't want to choose an executor who's older than you. You don't want to choose a parent because if you hold on to this will for 10 or 20 years, your parent could pass away, right? You want to choose someone younger or similar to your age who you know could take on this responsibility, who's intelligent and organized and responsible enough to do your bidding, if that makes sense. Because I've seen many times where the executor is not responsible or they're they could care less about the job that they're supposed to be doing. And this can get dragged out for years, or they may not even be trustworthy. Um, so be careful who you pick as your executor, but that's also going to be listed here in your will. Great example of an executor would be, you know, a sibling that you're close to, a best friend that you're really close to who knows you well and knows what your preferences are. Um, if you're older, an older adult child, you know, just typically picking one, is going to save a lot of headache. Because if you pick two executors as co-executors, what may happen is if they disagree on something, then again, that creates more problems. So, you know, everybody's situation is different, but just really think hard about this decision for your family, right? Um, the second thing you wanna do is take a look at how all of your accounts are titled. Your bank accounts. Um, your investment accounts, who owns what account? And can you answer this question? Where will this money go when I pass away? And what's dictating where this money will go? If you have a joint account at the bank, your money will automatically defaultly become the other person's money if you were to pass away and the account can stay open. That's a joint account. So if you're married or you have a spouse or, I mean, or if you have a partner, you have a joint account, that's a great way to go because if you passed, the money would just automatically become theirs. However, something to consider is you may not want them to have all that money, right? You may not want money in joint name, especially if you, you both keep your money separate. Everybody's situations are different. So if your money's not joint, it's in your own name, right? What's going to happen with a bank account in your own name? If the bank account is just solely owned accounts, it will have to be probated, meaning it will go to the court through the executor of your will, and that will be distributed based on the contents of your will. Um, it's going to take time for that to happen. The money will be frozen when you pass. The bank will freeze the money. Another option you have for a single owned account is to transition it to what's called a TOD, tra transfer on death account. And that gives your bank account a beneficiary. Okay, so if you have a really simple situation where maybe you're not married and you don't have any children or you have one child and you know one person is getting all of your money, the TOD is a great way to go. You can call up your bank, reach out to them and say, hey, I want to change the titling of my account to TOD, transfer on death. They'll send you the paperwork or direct you to the paperwork. You fill it out and you set up a beneficiary for that money. Okay. That then is going to pass completely outside of the will. This money is not going to be governed by the will. It's going to be governed by that beneficiary. I want you to think about any account that has a beneficiary is going to pass outside of your will. So think about a retirement account. All retirement accounts are set up with beneficiaries. This is something important for you to know.
retirement accounts, make absolutely sure you have your beneficiaries listed on your retirement account according to how you want your money to be distributed. But more importantly, do you have contingent beneficiaries listed? So you'll have your main primary beneficiary and a contingent beneficiary is if your beneficiary passed, who would you want the money to go to? That's a contingent. Let's say you want to leave your money to your brother. He's the same age as you. You pass away and the bank realizes your brother had just predeceased you. Where would your money go? That's who the contingent is, right? You want to set up contingents, okay? Not just primary, it's just in case. So most taxable accounts, bank accounts, investment accounts don't have a beneficiary. It's either going to be a joint or single name, but you can absolutely add a beneficiary if you so choose in the form of TOD. And like I said, retirement accounts, which are non-taxable accounts, those accounts already have a beneficiary set up automatically. Um, there's pros and cons to setting up a bank account with TOD. I don't recommend it if you have multiple beneficiaries for a lot of reasons. Um, it can get really hairy sometimes. So I, it's just, yeah, I'd say just pay attention to how things are titled and think about your family situation and do not hesitate to pull in an attorney when you're doing this kind of planning. If you have any sort of family drama or you have a black sheep of the family that's not around anymore, some you know sibling that disappeared because a will is totally contestable. So what that means is you can write out, you can make out your will, you can say you want to leave your money to your two brothers and leave out your sister. But your long lost sister, when she finds out you died, she can come and contest your will after your passing. And unless it's titled properly and worded properly, there's a chance that she could still get some money. Um, another example of family drama that I've seen, this is a really big one, is a wealthy family who left their daughter a large sum of money and she married a deadbeat. And then she got divorced. He was entitled to half of that money. The family would have never wanted that to happen, but they didn't do the right planning, right? So when you're leaving money to children, be thinking about where you want it to go. Do you want it to stay with your child? Because the divorce rate is over 50%. And if you want your money to stay with your child when you pass, you're going to have to put more protection around it than just a will. And so this is why I say wills are rather rudimentary because they kind of get the job done and they help you decide where money's going to go in just a real simple way. But they don't really take into account all of this life stuff, this complexity that we have in living this life, right? And that's where working with an attorney to set up a situation that's right for you comes in in the form of a living trust. And um, the word trust gets thrown about a lot. And people think like, oh, trust funds, trust fund baby. Um, we're not talking about a trust like Johnny inherits all this money from his family and they're paying him $10,000 a month to live. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a way to protect your money while you're alive. It's called a living trust and ensure that your money goes exactly where you want it to go for future generations, not just one. So an example of that is you can set up a living trust with an attorney and title your assets in the trust. And then if you pass away, your desired beneficiaries become the new owners of the trust. 
And then they can then send that money on to your grandchildren, but your children's spouses can't access the money. So there are a lot of different ways to set up living trust, but it's basically just a way to protect your money while you're living. And then when you pass, a lot of parameters go into place so that, that money kind of stays in the family. This is a great way to preserve wealth uh, generationally. And I'm a huge fan of building wealth for generations to come and protecting it in the right ways. And so working with a good estate planning attorney can help get you there. Now, this is going to be in the thousands of dollars, anywhere from, you know, 1500 to 5000 or $8,000, depending on the complexity. But generally, a living trust is going to be, you know, between two and $4,000. So that's why I said, go ahead and get the will in place. And then down the road, when you're ready to do a little bit more planning, you have the budget for it for your family, go to an estate planning attorney and go ahead and get this set up. Now, there's something else called advanced medical directives. These go into effect when you become incapacitated in the hospital. Something happens. You go into a coma. You've got your mom alive telling the doctor, absolutely, you cannot pull the plug on my daughter. And you've got your spouse saying she wants you to end her suffering. She does not want to be kept alive on a ventilator the rest of her life. Who gets to decide whether you live or die on the ventilator? That's what an advanced medical directive does. It tells doctors and the hospital what you want to happen in the case that you are incapacitated and you're, you know, going to be a vegetable the rest of your life. You get to decide, do you want to be on a ventilator for a year? Do you want to be on a ventilator for 20 years? Do you want them to not allow you to be on a ventilator for more than 48 hours? I don't know. You get to decide all of this. And so that's where working with an attorney as well and kind of getting all this set up can be really helpful. Because, man, that's another really tough area, right, is when you've got family members who are at odds and moms love their kids so, so much. They don't want to let them go. And then sometimes you've got the spouse saying, no, 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 like her preference is this. And it's the opposite of what mom wants. And so we see this a lot. This can all be prevented. All of this chaos and complexity can be prevented with the proper planning. Um, I already talked about guardianship. There are specific documents you can pull up online or work with an attorney to make sure you have guardianship set up for your children if anything were to happen to you or your spouse. Um, also consider who that guardian would be really carefully because if it's a parent, again, if you have young children, that parent could age out quickly um, and then who would take care of your kids then. So consider that really carefully and make sure you, you may even want to list like a contingent guardian if your parent were to pass if they were the ones in charge of your children. I'm going to go back to titling real quick and mention that titling of all of your assets, not just your accounts, is also vitally important. If you own a home and you have debt, do you know how it's titled? How is your home titled and how is the mortgage titled? I have seen many clients come in my door who may have the home titled differently than the mortgage. So that means that someone different owns the home than the person paying the debt on the home. Imagine that. That's a pretty bad situation to be in. I have a client I'm working with right now who somehow missed this. Her husband passed away. And what happened is her husband left ownership of the home to her son and her 50-50 each. 
but all of the mortgage is in her name. So she's actually going to take a massive loss on the sale of the home. She's not going to make any money and she's going to owe a ton of money because her son gets half of the proceeds of the sale of the home, but she has to pay off the entire mortgage herself. All of this could have been prevented with just simply taking a look at the titling of the mortgage in the house and making sure they match. Maybe you don't want them to match, but for the most part, yeah, you do. You don't want to be caught holding the bag for the debt on a home that you don't fully own, right? When you get divorced, when people get divorced, this is a huge one. Because sometimes even during the divorce, one person doesn't realize they still have the mortgage in their name and their spouse owns the home. This kind of stuff happens every day. So take a look at the deed of the house and make sure that it's titled the way you want it to be titled, that you have ownership in it, if you're paying on it, right? And that you also, the mortgage is titled in the way it needs to be titled so that you're both, if you have a partner, you're both on the mortgage. These are just really simple things, a little checklist that you can do. And I'm going to post a checklist to um, my newsletter. So if you sign up for my newsletter on my website at spiritualperspective.com, spiritualperspectivepodcast.com, Sign up for my newsletter. I'm going to be sending a like a legacy checklist, legacy planning checklist that you can just work through to make sure that you've done some of these things. And the last thing I want to mention is just if you're a business owner, make sure that you have an attorney that you trust that you're working with. Um, Businesses can get really complex. And if you were to pass away and you own a business and you have employees or you have debt on the business, so much nuance there. And, or even if you have partners, right? So this is where trying to do it yourself is not a good idea. It pays to hire a professional. Now, with that said, I think hiring a professional to help you with this planning, hiring a financial planner like myself makes a tremendous amount of sense. And I highly recommend you do that because you can see we're just touching the surface today on the short little podcast about things you can do. And your situation is so incredibly unique that when you sit down with a financial planner, they're going to be able to take a look at your situation and objectively help you set things up and pull the levers you need to pull to get everything in order. Um, Because the other piece of this planning that I haven't even had a chance to talk about is life insurance, right? The life insurance piece, which I mentioned with my father. Life insurance is something that you want to set up as young as possible for your family. When you are 20, 25, 30, 35, I don't care how old you are right now, you want to start shopping life insurance because if you have children, you want to make sure they're taken care of if you pass away. Working with someone like me to figure out how much insurance you need is invaluable. If you work with an insurance agent, they're getting paid on commission. They're selling. Okay. They're going to try to sell you their most expensive product. They're going to try to sell you as much insurance as possible. When you work with a financial planner, a fiduciary, or, you know, a money coach, we're completely objective. We're going to look at your numbers and we're going to say, okay, here's how much insurance you need based on your expenses and based on your projected expenses. Because guess what? Your children may want to go to school. They may want to go to college. Inflation right now is at 8%. So let's inflate the cost of living at 8% for the next, let's say, 15 years for your three-year-old. The cost of college is going to be astronomical, right? So you want to have enough insurance to cover the cost of education for your kids, if you so choose. Um, You want to cover the cost of housing for your spouse, for living for your spouse, even if they have a job. 
So all of this gets really, really complex. And so I'm not going to get into an insurance discussion today because it's so incredibly nuanced. What I wanted to bring to your attention by sharing my story is the importance of this type of planning and working with someone to get this done. At a bare minimum, make sure you have some insurance. And I will tell you the number one mistake I see, number one mistake, I think I'm going to make a reel about this, is only having employer life insurance, okay? Here's the pitfall of employer life insurance. When you leave your employer, it's gone. And people aren't staying with employers very long, okay? So you're paying, yeah, you're paying nothing for it. That's great and grand and wonderful. But it's not a permanent, the policy is not going to be with you forever. Are you planning to be there for 30 years while your kids grow up? What if something happens? What if you get laid off? What if you want to switch jobs? Well, you're not going to have it anymore. And you have to put a new policy in place with your new employer that's going to be a lot more expensive and maybe not as good. So those employer life insurance policies are not that great for a lot of reasons. And I highly, highly recommend that you work with a professional like myself to figure out an alternative and an addition to. I have independent life insurance outside of employer. My husband does too. So regardless of where we are in our lives, regardless of where we're working, our children will be taken care of if either of us passes. I've also taken into account the fact that um, I'm the breadwinner. So my insurance is a lot higher than my husband's. So you can see it's just so nuanced. There's so many pieces of the puzzle. And I just want to kind of give you a taste of what that's like because insurance is a huge planning opportunity uh, for your family. And it's the difference between your family potentially having to live a very different lifestyle if you were to pass away prematurely. If my father had not had insurance, I don't know where our family would have gone. We wouldn't have been living in that house my whole life. My mom's been in the same house, the house that I grew up in forever, and it's fully paid off because of life insurance. But if we hadn't have had that, she couldn't have afforded that mortgage. She couldn't have afforded to pay for me and my sister's private schooling. We would have had to move. We would have had to sell that house. And I mean, I don't know. I really don't know what we would have done. That's a wrap on our legacy discussion today. But before I go, I have a freebie for you guys. I have a free legacy planning checklist available via my email newsletter. So if you go to my website, spiritualperspectivepodcast.com, you can pop your email in there and you're going to get an email from me that includes the legacy planning checklist, which can really change the trajectory of your family's life if something were to happen to you. If you guys enjoyed this podcast episode, I would greatly appreciate a like, a share, a subscribe, and especially a review on Apple Podcasts. Catch you later.